I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Jessica Post, the president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, or the DLCC. You can find them at dlcc.org. The DLCC's focus is electing more state Democrats and winning legislative majorities for Democrats across the country. This is incredibly important for Democrats because having more Democrats in state legislative seats means everything from passing stronger gun control legislation or protecting access to free and safe abortions. And of course, the state legislature has the primary responsibility for creating a redistricting plan. In this conversation, Jessica and I take a look back at the 2010 midterms, and we talk about what went wrong for Democrats in 2010. But we also discuss the DLCC's 2020 strategy and why 2020 is a crucial year for winning state legislative seats. And we also talk about the crucial role the 2020 census plays in this process. Jessica is incredibly passionate about her work, and she and the entire team at the DLCC has been doing an incredible job. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jessica Post. Jessica Post, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be on Electorate. I'm very excited. Excited to be here, Jen. I'm so excited to talk to you, too. So I want to go back to 2010. The 2010 midterms, which was a point in time that I think a lot of Democrats don't want to revisit. I mean, because Democrats suffered some pretty significant losses. I think there were 13 Democratic governorships that were lost. Over 800 legislative seats were lost to Republicans. And we used to have pretty sizable majorities in the Senate and the House. And those were all lost in 2010. And back then, people described the 2010 midterm elections as a bloodbath for Democrats. And even Obama said that we suffered a shellacking. So from your perspective, what happened in 2010? Well, I think as Democrats, we took our eye off the ball in the 2008 election cycle and really into 2010. Remember, we went into 2010, we had 60 votes in the United States Senate, a majority in the House of Representatives, the presidency. And I think people thought, well, things are going very well. The Republicans thought there was no way back to power uh, because of the path. They felt like they had no path to take back the U.S. Senate and no path to take back the presidency with the trends that were happening in America, the changes that were happening as the electorate grew and uh, became more diverse under Obama. So as a result, the Republicans decided to launch Project Red Map a, uh, in 2010, and they spent only $30 million. And the, their goal was to take back and have a permanent hold on United States Congress, but also on state legislatures across the country. And by doing that, they were able to dismantle voting rights, and collective bargaining, women's rights, and really the backbone of these parties across the country by um, decimating Democrats at the state legislative level. And then they gerrymandered both the legislative districts and the congressional districts, making tilting the maps in favor of the Republicans. In states like North Carolina, where it's a 50-50 state, uh, Republicans have um, more than 60%, close to 70% of the congressional delegation. And that's also true in states like Wisconsin, where they gerrymandered um, in both the legislative level and also the congressional level. You know, we had to go in and break the supermajority in the North Carolina state legislature in partnership with folks in the state in 2018, uh, where they had a Democratic governor because the maps were so challenging and they've been challenged in court so many times. Uh, So about me in 2010, I was uh, the national field director here at the DLCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. We're the arm of the party that focuses on building democratic power in the states and winning state legislative races. And in the 2010 election cycle, I was on the ground in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, where I was the field director and I was trying to save the Pennsylvania State House because we needed that lever of power for redistricting. And it was a democratic majority going to 2010. And we lost it. It it was horrible. 
And as those results came in in the state that President Obama uh, and had won a prior year, uh, I curled up on the cold Harrisburg sidewalk as the <laughs> it was a rainy, cold night in Harrisburg. Um, as the legislative results came in, I left. There was still smoking inside bars. I left the smoky bar. And while the Koch brothers um, and Carl Rove were presumably like popping an expensive bottle of champagne, I went back into the bar, popped open a Budweiser, and I made a promise to myself that if I had anything to do with this work in the 2020 election cycle, that I would fight like hell to take back state legislatures. Because really, there's 20 years of power on the line. This is the first time in 20 years where we have the opportunity to have both presidential year turnout and a pre-redistricting election, the next time we'll have this opportunity. Wow. <laughs> That's quite the story. You know, I can picture you going back into the smoky bar, crying into your beer. It's, it's pretty cinematic. So so tell me, were you trying to warn people about this? You know, because the Republicans, you know, they had something like $30 million dedicated to this effort. That's not an amount that you can amass quietly, right? And it was a massive effort on their part. Mm -hmm. Were you or anyone else trying to, to head that off and warn Democrats that they needed to be on the ball to match the Republicans' effort? Yeah. I, look, I was a junior staffer at DLCC, but I, I was in some of the meetings. I, I think that some we weren't necessarily maybe speaking the right language. We also The spending also was extremely late in the election cycle. I remember we saw um, mailings against the leader of the Wisconsin Assembly come in very late. And in the Republicans have said this was a time that preparation met opportunity. So we knew that they were raising a lot of money. Carl Rove wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal that indicated uh, that they were going to go after state legislatures. And I remember I read the editorial and we were trying to protect the Indiana State House, which was a Democratic majority leading up to 2010. And he, he knew exactly where the races are. He said that races in West Lafayette, Indiana and... Um, and outside of Columbus, Ohio, places like that could impact congressional districts for the next decade. And he, the Republicans really knew what they were doing. As Democrats, we oh, at that time thought if we invested at the top of the ticket, that that effort would trickle down and would help state legislatures. And that just wasn't the case. You, you really have to build the Democratic Party and, and build infrastructure from the ground up. That's just the reality of it. And I, I think I was in some of the conversations with other national groups. We certainly could have uh, rang the alarm more going in. And so when I came back as executive director of DLCC in 2016, I made it my mission to always talk about the importance of state legislatures, be it building voting rights, redistricting, really most of the things that affect your day-to-day -day life happens in a state legislature. And, and you know that sitting in Washington state where we helped flip the state legislature from red to blue, the state Senate in 2010 by electing Monka Dingra and look at all the, the progress that's been passed in Washington state since that happened, an LGBTQ conversion therapy ban. It's been incredible to see the progress in Washington state. And it definitely kept my tank full in 2018 while we were trying to win a lot more legislative chambers, seeing the progress that could happen by winning a state legislature. Well, thank you for that, because I love living here, right? <laughs> we have, you know, the, I think we were one of the first to pass the $15 minimum wage because of those changes. Yes, it's been, I mean, the progress in, and if you think about Governor Jay Inslee, this huge advocate for climate change, he couldn't get any of that climate passed on his own. Um, and now Washington has joined the Paris Climate Accord, one of the many states that has gone into the an international climate accord without the federal government. And they've done so, so much progress in Washington state since 
um, since the flipping of that legislature. No, thank you very much. I'm never leaving, never leaving the state. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I just want to go back to basics because you became president, I think you said in the DLCC in 2016. So can you tell us what the DLCC's function is in the context of the larger party? Yes. So we're in the official Democratic Party committee committed to winning state legislatures and building democratic power in states. Our job is to elect more Democrats to state legislature, to protect the Democratic majorities we have across the country, and to do everything we can to support the flipping of state legislative chambers red to blue. And in doing that, uh, we do a number of things to support candidates. We support candidate recruitment. We fund in-state campaign capacity. So in every state, there's a... um, there's a House Democratic Caucus that's sort of the equivalent to the DCCC in a state. Um, they're in charge of winning state legislatures. We support the state legislative leader in their efforts to flip a chamber red to blue. We provide data, digital tools, and a lot of the model that we used in Virginia, we, we made early investments. We worked a lot to tell people that the chambers were still viable after the scandal at the top of the ticket. So we do a lot of work uh, just we essentially do everything from field to data to digital uh, to candidate recruitment in partnership with folks in states to make sure that Democrats are elected to state legislation. I see. You know, and also because of the gains in seats that were made in Virginia just this past year, those newly won Democratic seats, Virginia was able to become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, which was first introduced nearly a century ago. It was incredible. Yeah, we haven't had both chambers in a generation in Virginia and a Democratic governing trifecta. So it's been, for us, it's been so exciting to see all the progress that's come out since we flipped those two chambers in 2019. And we made a early investment at DLCC. We made a commitment of a million dollars in late 2018. And we really stayed with the Virginia House and Senate Democrats to do everything we could to flip those chambers. Yeah. And I want to talk about those examples as much as possible just throughout the year so people can really understand, you know, the value of flipping state legislatures, right? We have concrete things like the ERA and the $15 minimum wage. So totally. Well, in Virginia, we've also seen a real expansion of voting rights. They've passed automatic voter registration, same day voter registration. And the voting rights, I live in Virginia, the, and I'm actually voting in the presidential primary um, next week. And I'm going to have to go and sign a um, statement if I vote early that says I'll be out of my uh, voting precinct for 12 hours for work. And now you'll be able to just simply go in and vote early, cast an early ballot in Virginia, or you can just simply register on election day. Uh, so those, those pieces in voting rights, huge progress. They also passed non-discrimination in LGBTQ non-discrimination, including trans people, which was the first legislation to protect uh, trans folks to pass in the South, I I think, ever. So it's been incredible progress in Virginia. You know, in Virginia, you could be evicted from your home uh, if you were gay and there wasn't any legal protection. And now uh, they've passed legal protection for that, which is really exciting. So when you came in in 2016 or when you took this new role in 2016, what was your first priority? So I, I was at Emily's List uh, in between my time at DLCC. I, I worked on the federal program where I recruited and advised candidates running for Congress, the U.S. Senate governor. And then I also was running the state program at Emily's List, Focus 2020, focused on redistricting. We spent a lot of time saying like, look, here's why we do this work. We do this work because, and we had some examples, you know, in, in Maryland, um, 
they had restored voting rights to uh, people who had served their sentences. And the Democratic legislature had overrode the or overridden the gubernatorial veto of that. So I, I had this clear vision. What if we could do this all across the country and have these Democratic majorities? So we took the staff on a retreat and had a, a, a really I had a clear discussion. And so I, I realized that we needed to do a few things. One, we needed to diversify um, our donor base at DLCC to make the DLCC more stable. So we started communicating with grassroots Democratic donors across the country. I knew that we needed to build out our digital presence. Uh, we only had one person doing digital, and it was really important that we built out a, a broader digital communications program to talk uh, sincerely about the work that we did um, and to grow an online community of support that would support us uh, with low-dollar contributions as well online. So those were, I think, some of the initial priorities that I came in with. But there were uh, a million things that needed to, need to be done. And I remember um, that I came in and I'm looking at these calendars here in my office, you know, those large 90-day wall calendars. Yeah. The first thing I did is I like put up a year's worth of the wall calendars and I couldn't get them up straight to save my life. And I, uh, and also like, I couldn't, I was trying to like put them up with, with thumbtacks and I just like laid on the office floor and cried because I was so overwhelmed by, and I, I couldn't get this one thing right. So our field director came in who I'd worked with before the current field director and, and put them up straight for the first time. And I'm like, okay, we can do this and we can get these calendars right. So now the calendars are on the wall and I look at them month by month to try to figure out our, our path forward every day. But the calendars are hung pretty straight now on the wall <laughs> and they reflect my actual calendar. So it, it took that and a, a million other things, but we've made so much progress. When I came back, we had less, fewer than 16 staff. Uh, we were a $16 million organization in 2016. Uh, this cycle will have more than 60 staff um, doing campaign services supporting our campaigns all around the country, and we'll have a $50 million budget. So we've been able to grow uh, beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, when I came back, I thought maybe we get to $35 million or $30 million, and we exceeded the $30 million goal I set, set for 2020 in the 2018 cycle. So it, the growth has been incredible, and it's, it's really been because of, of new activists like, like yourself, Jen, that have stepped forward um, to participate across the country that, that we've been able to have this level of success. Yeah. You know, I just have to go back that that, that's a theme with you, like being on the floor crying. And it seems like when, when you have one of those moments, (laughs) good things follow. So (laughs) I, I bought, you know, the, the Drake song started at the bottom. Now we're here. I actually, I bought, and you know, the Drake on cake blog. So I I bought our, our staff two cookie cakes. Uh, When we, we outraised our Republican counterpart in July of 2019 which is something I never thought would happen, but we did it. And so I, I bought two cookie cakes that said, started at the bottom, now we're here to share with our staff. <laughs> because I, really like that moment on the floor felt like the bottom. And you know, we flipped 10 chambers since Trump, red to blue. We've made tons of progress. We flipped more than 430 seats, red to blue. It feels great. And uh, we feel better prepared than we've ever been to go into 2020. So now we're here and and now we just have to keep going. And hopefully I won't be on the floor again. 
<laughs> no, you should, because I mean, you, you could like, you know, triple the amount you've raised. I mean, you have, you've done, you, you're right, 430 legislative seats. I think uh, you sent me a chart where I think in 2010, you had like $8 million in the coffers and now yeah. you're on track for 50, which is incredible. 50 million, that's your goal. And you're on track to, to meet that. We're really excited. That was beyond my wildest dreams. When I left, Emily's List was a $52 million organization in 20. 20- my first cycle there in 2014. And, and now we're getting close to that level, which is incredible. And, um, and Emily's List continues to be a great partner in our work. They've now announced a $20 million investment in state legislatures. Uh, so they've been an incredible partner um, and they've really grown their support and interest in state legislatures as well. So that's another goal has been to align and grow the, the investment of progressive allies in legislatures and explain, hey, look, if we flip the state legislative chamber it's likely that climate change legislation will get passed or they'll enshrine protections to Roe v. Wade into state law since the Supreme Court is currently not a pro-choice court. So we'll be able to do these things in states um, to really present a firewall against the Trump administration, similar to everything you've seen with the progress in Washington state. So you mentioned, speaking of money, you mentioned one of the things that you changed was grassroots donations. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean individuals like myself or small organizations? Like, Yeah, it's really the folks that are giving online or that write us a $10 check and send it to us in the mail. And after the 2016 election, um, our phones were ringing off the hook uh, with folks that can be receiving emails, Facebook messages, DMs on Twitter. Uh, filled with people who really wanted to help and and got that the reason why Donald Trump wasn't going to have an accountable Congress was because of the gerrymandering of congressional districts and that legislatures draw congressional lines. And many of the activists across the country had connected the dots and wanted to do everything they could to flip state legislatures. So it's it's really folks that are giving $2 online. I think our average contribution is $27. So, so we're really funded by low-dollar contributors. Um, we also have attracted some um, individual donors that have a strong giving capacity that, that really want to make change by winning back state legislatures. And that's been great. And that's added to the support of our traditional allies, uh, such as labor unions and our progressive allies like Planned Parenthood that are working really closely with us to help flip legislatures. I see. That makes sense. So that was why it was important for you to grow your digital staff. I can't believe you only had one person doing that before. It was incredible. It was one person. And he also did research sometimes. So a, a lot of the organization needed um, needed growth and we've driven really hard. We also have been able to hire incredibly talented uh, staff members who we've given a lot of ownership to. And they've done just beyond our wildest dreams in terms of the creative that we see on digital, um, the data and analytics program we've been able to put together to accurately predict control of state legislative chambers. It's been, it's, it's really been amazing. Um, I've been humbled by the talent that we've been able to attract to DLCC. So the success really is, is because of them and because of folks all across the country, like yourself and, and so many people stepped up to run. We had record numbers of candidates running for office after 2017 or in the 2017 cycle that didn't felt like they needed to do something. So they decided to put their names on ballots. So we had full slates of candidates. I, that That's really what brought this change. Um, and I was able to, to show a vision to our team that we needed to be a, a bigger and stronger organization. 
And we were able to to make that happen because of really all the pieces coming together in the states. Well, you know, you just mentioned a really good point that, you know, lots of people came forward to run and, you know, everyone doesn't win their seat. Everyone doesn't win. But what happens is even for the people who don't win, they become advocates for this mission. Right. They go out, they tell other people they may run again in the future. But, you know, they become stronger, I guess, political voices in this fight. That's completely right. In, in many cases, they were organizing in places where the Democratic Party brand had not been held up. At DLCC, we hold more than 400 districts that Donald Trump won. And we still hold a lot of districts in places like rural Wisconsin, where uh, we have, for example, State Senator Janet Buley, who is the symbol of what it is to be a Democrat uh, in that part at the state level in that part of Wisconsin. So a lot of what we do is make sure our candidates are ready to run good campaigns And there's so much overlap between our targets and the presidential battleground. So we've done a lot of work. We've invested millions of dollars setting up uh, campaign capacity to run these small campaigns across the country And because there is so much overlap with our targets. But yes, it was incredible to see the number of people step up to run. We fielded full slates in places like Ohio, North Carolina, and Texas, and most recently in Virginia, um, they just couldn't get Republicans to run. We recruited so many Democrats. And in some ways, we won that chamber simply on recruitment because they weren't challenging as many uh, Democratic districts as we were challenging Republican districts. So that created a big, big advantage. And then the other thing that we saw was people that were willing to run in really tough, challenging Republican districts because they wanted to hold up the party's brand and they wanted to make sure that uh, we were contesting seats across the states. And those folks have been brave and incredible. And then in places like Arizona, we had an incredible candidate who barely lost, Christine Marsh, who had been the Arizona State Teacher of the Year running in the Phoenix suburbs. And she stepped up to run again because she knew that she had built a great campaign infrastructure. And so she's back in. And a number of candidates in Arizona, Felicia French, who's a, she's a medevac, she was a medevac pilot. Uh, she flew Blackhawks in, in Afghanistan. And then also a businessman named Doug Irvin and an independent who ran again. So there's a number of candidates in Arizona who narrowly lost who are, are back on the ballot again. And that's that's really brave. And I said that to them, that it was incredible that they were willing to stick with it and run again. Wow, that's incredible. You know, we have the best people. We do. We do. And I, I'm amazed every day that the entire Republican Party just doesn't defect. <laughs> but they don't, you know, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned something else that's really important. And I want to keep emphasizing this throughout the year. So 2020, I think, is a really pivotal year, right, in terms of redistricting. Like, so, So why is that? Absolutely. So state legislatures draw the geographic voting boundaries or the districts um, that folks live in in 30 some states that you're able to vote in. And that's both uh, in some cases at the congressional level and at the state legislative level of the ballot. Those district boundaries are drawn by state legislatures. State legislatures have the pen. So after the census happens, the census will happen uh, this year in 2020, the census data will go to the states in early 2021. And then all of the states will need to redraw their district boundaries based on the population changes that are documented in the census. So for your listeners, it's also really important to fill out the census because that will determine Um, resource allocation in many ways to your state. 
So fill out the census, and then the state legislatures start redrawing the lines. Uh, in this, in 2021, there are, of course, some redistricting commissions as well. So the, the folks that we elect here in 2020 uh, will be the people with the pens to draw congressional districts and legislative districts for the next decade. And this is the first opportunity, as I said earlier, that we've had in 20 years on a presidential election year. So really in modern um, campaign times, redistricting used to just be about protecting incumbents, protecting incumbent Republican congressional members, incumbent Democratic members. But the Republicans made it incredibly partisan. And with the addition of data and the technology, advancements in mapping technology and, and micro-targeting data and the Republicans' willingness to make it even more partisan, it became even more strategic and much more about maximizing Republican maps when the pen was in the hand of Republicans in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina. So who you vote for this year for state legislature in 35 states, those people will have a pen in their hand to draw a district boundary. So it's so critically important to get this right. Jen, the next time, and I've made this joke before, but I'll make it again, uh, call me call me Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so the next time we have uh, this opportunity will be in 20 years. It'll be 2040. I'll be 60. Uh, my hope is that I'll be retired and on my way to operate Spinyasa Cone, my, um, <laughs> my vinyasa slash spin slash Jenny's ice cream, hopefully, <laughs> provider, <laughs> and so our lives will be very different. So we really have a huge opportunity in front of us um, for the next 20 years. Because look, it's, it'll be a midterm election again um, when we come up on redistricting next. And it was a midterm election in 2010 uh, when we lost so many seats. And then those maps that were drawn in 2011 made us lose even more seats. Uh, so those things were really challenging. And our, our hope is that we can turn this around this year. Yeah, that's really it's scary. And it's like another chance in 20 years. So people, please fill out your census form when you see it. Um, but I want to ask you, I, I just realized that there is another race in this context that's really important. Chris Kobach, isn't he running for office? <laughs> yeah. So um, so Chris, I mean, Chris Kobach has been a, he's a guy in Kansas and he's long been a absolute opponent of voting rights. So he's just absolutely terrible. And he's running for the United States Senate and he's interested in, it really is, he was, he's done everything he can along with Wilbur Ross at the census data citizenship question um, to the census to essentially eliminate public participation. But yeah, Chris Kobach has been an absolute enemy of voting rights. He also tried to get all of the states to turn over their elect electoral roles, and many Democratic secretary of states refused to. So he's he's been a real nightmare um, for a long time and, and a true opponent of voting rights. So hopefully we can elect Barbara Bollier to United States Senate and, and beat him and, and his political career in Kansas. Not our job, but we're with you all the way, Barbara Bollier. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I've been kind of following that that race, too. And it's funny because whenever anyone mentions Chris Kobach, like I, I actually tweeted literally the exact same thing. The first word that comes to, to mind is like terrible, terrible person. Yeah. And interestingly, in Kansas, part of our play this year is to um, with the new Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, is to go in and break the Republican supermajority in either the Kansas House or state Senate so we can protect her veto of redistricting maps. So we also play strategically in that way to figure out are there ways we, because, so Kelly will veto 
Republican-drawn maps, most likely. The veto override threshold is normally two-thirds. So if you can get two-thirds of the Republicans to vote together, they can override a veto. And so what we need to do is go in and put a few more Democrats into the state legislature to make sure that they can't override her veto. I see. You know, another thing that you mentioned, and I'm really interested in this, you're creating messaging plans. I don't know what that means, actually. You can explain it to me. But one thing that I noticed that Republicans are really consistent with their messaging. Yeah, they, it true, they have been consistent with their messaging top to bottom. I mean, they, people are on their talking points in their party. That is true. Even if it's completely ridiculous and out of context, they're still willing to sit to talk about socialism or uh, whatever they might talk about. So one of the things we're interested in doing, and we did this in Virginia, is is to amplify the accomplishments of Democrats in state legislatures, and then to also highlight Republican legislative failings in state. For example, in um, Florida, they had just a terrible state legislative session, and the editorial boards and the Florida newspapers have have really taken them to task for that. Um, They they failed to act on, uh, even after the Parkland shooting, they failed to act on gun safety they haven't made the appropriate changes that they really need to make on LGBTQ equality. And uh, they haven't addressed a lot of other crises. And so part of our strategy is to talk about that, but then also work with candidates to make sure they're talking about local issues uh, when they're knocking on doors. The issues like education, healthcare, uh, and school safety are really big for people right now. And in some, in some places, the, the biggest issue might be healthcare and the closing of rural hospitals. So we do a lot of work uh, with candidates to say, tell us why you're running, tell us your personal story. But then in addition to that, listen to the voters at the doors, listen to their stories, and then tell, tell them back why you're running uh, to solve those specific issues. And then incorporate that into your conversations and, and use the language that you hear voters using. Don't use Washington language about bipartisanship or sides of the aisle, use use language about working together and solving problems and, and making sure that, that people have a, a hospital in their area if that's what's needed. Because the, the closing of rural hospitals is certainly related to Medicaid expansion, in which is obviously a state law, um, or the de- denial of um, the expansion of the Affordable Care Act in some of these states. So these are truly state-based issues. Um, traffic was a big issue in Northern Virginia. In, a, For example, um, Danica Rome, the first transgender person to be elected to any state legislature. So Danica um, was on the red carpet with Demi Lovato, uh, who I'm a huge <laughs> fan of. And, and, and it, so, which was incredible that Demi Lovato, this is the world we're living in now, that Demi Lovato is taking a delegate from a state legislature to, to some sort of award show. So they're on the red carpet together, and the entertainment reporter asked Danica, uh, why are you running for office? And Danica tells the entertainment reporter, oh, it's about the traffic on Route 28. So Route 28 <laughs> is like the most famous traffic piece of highway in America now. But it, it, the entertainment reporter had no idea, right? Absolutely no idea. But she's been laser focused because that traffic is about the quality of life for her constituents. And that's what she's in the legislature to do. They've made a lot of other progress on LGBTQ equality, but when man, when she was elected in in 2017 and there at 2019, she was laser focused on Route 28 to the extent that she would even tell an entertainment reporter about it. So that's the sort of local messaging I think that's uh, persuasive and and that really will make sure that our candidates are illustrating that they're there to serve, that they're not there to go into their state capital and and just um, bicker, but really to make meaningful change in the lives of their constituents. That's why they decided to run. And at our level of the ballot, you know, many of these folks are taking pay cuts to run. They, 
in New Hampshire, you make $100 a year to serve in the state legislature, plus some per diem in the state house. Is Truly, these people are, are really public servants in legislatures across the country. Wow, that, that was actually really smart because you think about it, that little snippet probably played locally. And then all of her <laughs> constituents locally are saying, like, this is why we should vote in down ballot races. Like, this is important. You know, they're fixing the neighborhood in the city that we that we live in. Yeah, it's I mean, it's truly a quality of life issue. I mean, if you think about it, being stuck in traffic means you you can't get home to to see your kids play soccer because you can't get in from D.C. You're late to work. It, it's truly a quality of life issue for her constituents. It's, it's much more than than just a log jam. It's really about living and and what what is your future in in Northern Virginia if you live in Manassas and know that you have to commute every day as the metro area gets even more crowded. So that's she was really saying like, hey, I care about your future. I care about your quality of life, and I'm here to serve. So in 2020, what states are you targeting? Which states are the most important? In 2020, we're completely on the offense, which we couldn't be more excited about going into this election cycle. And and that's a complete reversal. In, in 2010, we had a lot of chambers that we had to protect. And so it, the states that are the most important, um, the Minnesota State Senate is a huge target of ours. Uh, we only need two seats to win. We'll have a Democratic governing trifecta if we can do it. Uh, the Arizona House and Senate, Arizona is a huge target for us. Pennsylvania, we're looking to flip the Pennsylvania House and Senate red to blue. There's a huge redistricting impact there. The North Carolina House and Senate uh, are huge targets of ours. Uh, The governor has no role in redistricting in North Carolina. He can't veto maps. So we have to win one of those levers of power uh, in order for us to affect redistricting. The Texas State House is at the top of our list as well. Uh, We're looking at chambers and places, uh, growth in chambers in places like Wisconsin, the Iowa State House uh, is a huge, a huge target of ours too. The Michigan State House is big as well, and then we're looking to expand into states like Florida, Montana, and then maybe even West Virginia. So those are some of the targets at the top of our list. So a lot of that, as you heard, overlaps with the presidential campaign. And I'll tell you, after the 2016 election, I was presenting with my Republican counterpart. And he looked at me and he said, Jessica, I don't know why you were surprised that you lost the presidency. We've been punching holes in your blue wall for years. And what he meant by that was they, the Republicans won in the 2010 election cycle, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. And they went in and they changed the voting laws in all of those states or kept restrictive voting laws in states like Pennsylvania. And they you know, ended collective bargaining in, in some of these states. Uh, they made a number of restrictions on our allies and organized labor. They made increased abortion restrictions. And those voting rights made it much harder to um, to win some of these states in, in other years, the restrictions on voting. So they knew what they were doing, and they, they did those things on purpose in order to win the congressional districts, but to keep hold of these legislatures that wrote the voting laws in these states. So anyone, anyone listening or any constituent can help by presumably what you talked about earlier, vote, I mean, not voting, definitely vote. That's the minimum you should do, right? But but donating, because I'm looking at your website right now, dlcc.org, and I see the huge red donate button. <laughs> but if you're in one of these states, is there anything that you should be doing? Yeah, it, there's a few things like dlcc.org is a, a great resource. Uh, obviously, we'd, we'd love folks to consider making a, a contribution. Uh, dollars go so far at our level of the ballot. We're competing in small races. So it's a, a really high leverage investment for folks to make. In state legislative races, our races tend to cost quite a bit less than races at the other levels of the ballot. So that's absolutely huge for us. Uh, if they go to races.dlcc.org, 
they can see state legislative candidates in their state that might need resources, or they can sort by issue uh, to look at if there's a reproductive rights champion or a climate change champion that they might want to support. So they can look at key issues and um, make the decisions to advance advocates for those issues. And then in addition to that, we'd encourage people to get involved, to start volunteering with their state legislative candidate in their community and to um, and to get involved with their um, their their state. You know, you, you can make so much more of a difference by uh, working on one of these small campaigns and developing a relationship with your state legislator. The state legislators in the office every day, you'll develop a close relationship with them. And and that's you know another way to affect policymaking is to tell your story as a campaign volunteer to the state to legislator. Um, one of the, the state senators that I know up in Delaware actually changed his opinion on medicinal marijuana because of his, um, in, and he's now in favor of it because of one of his campaign volunteers and their advocacy for it. So there's really a, a huge way, an outsized way to make an impact on policy in your state uh, because so we're, we've done a lot of work to get more people involved, but we definitely need more people involved at our level of the ballot. You know, I always say that like your aunt may not know the name of your the state legislative candidate, whereas your aunt might know the name of the presidential candidate that you're working for. So we we always need more uh, resources and help at, for these folks that have been flying below the radar. Yeah, I see it now. So if you go to the site, like there's a, a link to races, right? And you can filter for your state. And you guys just had a victory in what's it, Pennsylvania. Did you mention this, Ronnie Green? Yeah, so that was Ronnie Green, SEIU business agent, um, won in a strong district in Pennsylvania. So African-American woman, that was a huge victory. And then we also had another huge victory in Kentucky. Um, a woman named uh, Rachel Roberts uh, won in Kentucky, and it was a 21-point vote swing from Trump. So a, a heavily Trump district that a Democrat won. So we we're very excited to see that win as well. So we're still winning in tough districts. Uh, using that strategy of, of recruiting great candidates and, and local messages. And that was certainly true in that Roberts district down in Kentucky. And then we're so excited to see Representative Green uh, join the Pennsylvania State House. I think her voice will be very important there. Well, I'm so excited for 2020. I, just talking to you, I feel better. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, we're doing everything we can. I, I, I'm an optimist, as you know. Um, and we feel really good going into 2020 about the organization that we've built uh, and we'll continue to build as we move forward. Well, Jessica Post, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. And thank you so much for your work on this. It's incredible. Well, thank you for starting this. Seattle's one of our favorite places. So I'll reach out next time we're out there. We're always we're so proud of the work we did in Washington and um, proud of the accomplishments of the legislature. So I'll reach out the next time I'm in Seattle. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>